Welcome to HeyYA. From great new books to favorite classic reads, news stories to the latest in on-screen adaptations, HeyYA is here to elevate the exciting world of young adult lit. HeyYA is a book riot podcast hosted by Erica Azafetti and me, Tears of Price. We are recording this on February 24th. Hello, Erica. Hey, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. I just came back from New Orleans for Mardi Gras, which was an interesting trip. It was interesting. But yeah, it was fun. And now my allergies are like, oh, you were on vacation. So were we. And now we're back. So Uh, no (laughs) fun. Yeah, no fun at all. Yeah, that's like, you know, the exciting thing about like spring is coming soon. But then Mm -hmm. that's also like, oh, Oh my God. So is like everything that causes me to sneeze. Every single thing. All of them are coming back. But how is it in your area? Are you getting like... Being in being in Louisiana is like the opposite of anything snowy, but I know like completely <laughs> opposite. So like I was on vacation mode, but I was hearing about people, you know, other people at Book Riot going really going through it with snow. Like so how is your area? Yeah. The Midwest got walloped pretty yeah. hard. Mm-hmm. Um luckily the worst of it for us in northwest Iowa was some ice, some snow, and then like as always, the brutal wind, but we did not get like the heavy, heavy, heavy ice that like I think further east of us got that is causing all the power outages and all that yeah. fun stuff. Um, we kept our power, but it was an interesting week for me just because um, my partner actually had to like fly to a different part of the Midwest. And mm. I was like, this is just going to be really interesting to see if your flights will go off. And like, if we live two and a half hours from the airport, so then, you know, we're driving. <laughs> I know it's been a little bit uh, wild. There were there were some cancellations and delays, but you know what? We have come out of it. You know the positive side, so no complaints on my end. Mm. Except for you know, I'm just tired of shoveling. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. How do you feel about snow blowers? I do not own one, mm. but my neighbor owns one, mm-hmm. and God bless him. He always <laughs> snow blows our sidewalk and driveway yes. for us. Bless. So I am pro snowblower. <laughs> Especially for such and such neighbor. I know. He's so nice. We, awesome. we like make him cookies every winter because like he does not have to do that, but he does. So, um, But that's like a very Midwestern, like middle-aged dude type of thing. Where he's like, I got a snowblower? <laughs> Who on the block needs snowballs? <laughs> and he always has a covered. That's wonderful. I love how we settle into certain like roles as we get older. I'm starting to settle into certain roles. Like, oh yeah, I get why my mother, my aunt, my grandmother do did this. <laughs> right. My uncle and my grandfather. I get it now. I've like very like unironically leaned into using the word folks a lot, like oh, just nice. because it's gender neutral and it's nice. so you know I think it's such a great word. Mm-hmm. And every time I do, I feel a little bit like my dad, but <laughs> at the same time, I'm like, this is fine. <laughs> this is fine. Sixteen-year-old me would be like cringing, but I'm like, this is fine. Yeah, no, this is great. People, you know what? People have been using folks more, like people within our generation or whatever. Yeah, I I think maybe because perhaps because it is gender neutral, maybe. But I've been seeing that here and there a little more and more. So you're not alone in that. I, you know, sometimes I feel. Like, people are like, oh, gosh, millennials are getting so old. And I'm like, yeah, because we are. So everybody just calm down. 
Exact. Our knees hurt. Okay. Right. Once we hit 25, the knees were like, goodbye. Like we, we carry Tums wherever we go and we mm. backaches. Just leave us alone. Leave us, let us alone. Let us have our folks. For, let us have, leave us to our folks in Advil. I have that. For me, it's Advil liquid gels. Oh, yes. So <laughs> anyway, now that we've established that we are old and yes. we are also doing a podcast about <laughs> why. Oh, Amazing. Man. Amazing. Um, we got a little bit of fun news or at least i'm super pumped about this this news and it is shadow and bone season two it's coming up march 16th Ooh. so pumped but i'm also like oh no i'm in danger because i have a book due at the end of march and i'm gonna want to take the entire oh. weekend off to watch this show and i'm not going to be able to so oh my god yeah I, but i think it'll be a nice like little delicious treat that i can save for the end yeah. of march i'll just have to you know avoid all spoilers and commentary which will be difficult yeah, I was about to say, just don't even start it. Yeah, if I were you, all that I would, it would be t- sabotage for me to start it when it first came out. Yeah, I yeah, I think I watched the first season either within like the first day it came out or the first mm-hmm. two days. Like I watched the entire thing, and it was like COVID times, right? So like we couldn't go anywhere or do anything, and I somehow cleared my schedule, and I woke up one morning and I made myself waffles. If you know, you know. Um, and then I watched the entire thing in like a Friday and a Saturday, and it was awesome. So uh, my heart is longing to repeat that experience. But if my editor is listening to this, don't worry, I'm going to be <laughs> writing my book. <laughs> but I'm very excited about season two, especially because it looks like we are going to get all of the Six of Crows um, crew together in this second season. So uh, one important member was missing in the first season mm. and I kept waiting for him to show up and, and being confused, but the way they kind of set everything up, it makes sense that he doesn't show up, but he shows up in season two, according to the previews. And I'm very excited about this. Nice. I came one step closer to reading this series. I read Lee Bardugo's adult books. Oh, they're so good. This past a uh, couple, like this in January. Yes. Ninth house and Hellbent so good yes so i was like all right lee i see you i see you and i was like all right with this one i think i'll watch the show and then read six of crows yeah it follows it fought the the show follows the books fairly well right well so what's interesting is it does and it doesn't Mm. so shadow and bone it what it does is it combines the shadow and bone trilogy with the six of crows which in the book world they take place at different times so like shadow and bone trilogy happens first and then six of crows happens a little while afterwards and there's no overlap of those characters except for one character there's like he's not you know a major major character but Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of overlap there but otherwise no the six of crows crew does not meet alina and is not involved in any of her her escapades in the books Mm -hmm. but when i heard that they were combining the two i was really skeptical i think a lot of readers were really skeptical because we were like how are you going to pull that off but what they end up doing is they take the six of crows crew and you they have a lot of backstory when you first start reading six of crows and that backstory is kind of sprinkled throughout but most of that backstory that happens they take and they put it in the tv show as a way to kind of bring them in so i think it's kind of smart because 
you know, with Shadow and Bone, there's three books worth of great material there. But then by bringing in the Six of Crows characters, you're ensuring that there's going to be more content after the events of Shadow and Bone wrap up. I see. Makes sense. Yeah. And I can understand why people were very skeptical when they heard like the, the combination was happening. Yeah. But it's one of those things where it's like, trust me, just watch it. I mm-hmm. think it worked out really well. And it might end up going in different directions later on down the road but so far a lot of like the same characters even some of the same actions and scenes have been happening and they're really good and and they add stuff to the show that isn't in the books that i really enjoyed so yeah it's a really unique adaptation but it works so it's hard because if if you want to read the books first it's kind of like well you have to read like five books before you can that's what that's what i was saying yeah yeah but if you read Six of Crows first, you're not spoiling anything for the show because most of the central action is from the Shadow and Bone universe. So I might read. So, okay. Since it's Six of Crows stuff is woven into the show, I might read that first and then watch the show. Because yeah. I was like, I wanted to, you know, participate in it. But I'm like, it's like, like you said, it's like five books. And it's like, yeah. ugh. So that's why I haven't started it yet. I know. It's a big commitment. And I yeah. do like the Shadow and Bone trilogy. It mm-hmm. feels to me like, okay, you know, it's her first book. Yeah. And she definitely sticks the landing and they're great. It's a great solid trilogy. But when I read Six of Crows, I was like, oh, Lee Bardugo, she's coming into her own. Like she That's... really improved, I think, yeah. as a writer. Which, you know, yeah. it just happens. The more you write, the more you improve. And she really, I think, stretched herself and it really paid off in, you know, a big way. So yeah, and I would like to think that maybe eventually if the show continues to be popular, which, you know, the first season was very popular, yeah. that like eventually they'll work up to doing like the main events of the Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom books, mm-hmm. that, that those will work their way on screen. But for right now, it's mostly just kind of taking those characters and putting them in the, the Shadow and Bone world and weaving in their backstories that are teased in Six of Crows and, and in a really exciting way. So yeah, I'm super curious to see where it goes. And I'm really excited to watch season two. Yeah, I'm excited to get into it too. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm just thinking like I read the book and then I'm like, oh, and we'll watch the first season and second season. And then I'm like, dear, you got to watch it so we can talk about it. Because yeah. I will definitely marathon it. And I'll be like, hurry up and watch it, please. Yes, do it. Um, because I really, really enjoyed the adult books of hers that I read. So I feel like... She's an incredible writer yeah. who manages to hold lots of different threads together. And it's, yeah, really fun. So, yay! Yes! So we have some strong women, strong female leads in YA historical fiction to share with you. Before we do, let's hear from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by The Dial Press, publishers of The Prospects by KT Hoffman. The pressure cooker of minor league baseball leads to major chemistry in this exhilarating, sexy, and triumphant rivals to lovers debut romance. Gene Ionescu is the first openly trans player in professional baseball. He has nearly everything he's ever let himself dream of. That is until Luis Estrada, Gene's former teammate and current rival, gets traded to the Beavers. Now, Gene and Louise can't manage a civil conversation off the field or a competent play on it, but in the close confines of dugout benches and roadie buses, they begrudgingly rediscover a comfortable rhythm. As the two grow closer, the tension between them turns electric and their chemistry spills past the confines of the stadium. So this is one of the first adult rom-coms published by a major publishing house centering a gay trans man by a gay trans man. 
It also has ADHD and anxiety representation and some joyful, heartfelt moments. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to The Dial Press, publishers of The Prospects by KT Hoffman for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Amazon Publishing. So I got a story with a little Old West debauchery, if you want to get a little messy. So there is a city steeped in the Old West mess. And in the city, a reporter is following every lead to a dangerous place, one that could bring him glory and fame or end his life. New York Times bestselling author Robert Dugoni is back with a gripping new thriller of corruption, vice, and murder set in Depression-era Seattle. It's about a reporter covering a hot murder trial who soon learns nothing is what it seems. The story could make his career if he lives to write about it. You can learn more at Amazon.com slash A Killing on the Hill. So yes, A Killing on the Hill by Robert Dugoni is what you need to pick up if you are into some depression era danger in Seattle. It's a city of big dreams and dark ambitions. And this reporter gets caught up in the muck. So make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Amazon Publishing for sponsoring this episode. Okay. We have a lot of great books. I'm just looking at the list. I know. I'm like, ooh, these are really good. Pats on the back. (laughs) Snaps for Casey. Yeah. Would you like to go first or shall I go first? Sure. I'll kick us off. Yeah. My first pick is a book that I feel like I've probably talked about on the show before because I love it so much. And I feel like it does not get enough love and attention, especially considering that it talks about like a time and a topic in history that doesn't get like tons of play in YA fiction. Yeah, this is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. So it's um, The Degenerates by J. Albert Mann. And oh my gosh, this book like ripped my heart out. It's so good though. It was also published in like March 2020. So I feel really bad because I think a lot of books that get published in March 2020 sadly did not find the audience that they deserved considering we were all panicking about a global pandemic. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. (laughs) Pretty much. But it is about four teenage girls, young women who what they have in common is that they find themselves trapped um, in the Massachusetts School for the Feeble-Minded and... um, that is not a term that we use now, but that is what it was called in like 1928, which is when this book is set. So it's told from multiple perspectives. And these four young women are definitely at the heart of the book. But the sort of primary protagonist is London. And she is this orphan who has been passed around in the foster care system, which um, if you can imagine, is not super great in the 1920s. Mm. And she, you know, finds herself falling for this boy who gets her pregnant and then rather than you know in the 1920s doing the right thing which is marry her um he pretends that like oh she's just um somebody who sleeps around and that can't possibly be his baby so fun fact if you were a teenage girl in the 1920s and you did not have parents or anybody to vouch for you um you could just get shipped off to this school um, if you were pregnant because you were considered like a perversion of society. Oh my so God. that's, yeah, it's horrifying. So that's how mm. she finds herself trapped in the school. And she is kind of, you know, she's very street smart, but she's kind of naive in a way. So she just thinks that like, okay, I'm going to have my baby and then I'll, you know, get out of here. And then she discovers by making friends with three other young women that, um, no, 
she is pretty much stuck here for life. Like once you're in, it's a life sentence. And not only is London going to be stuck there for life, but like they're going to, they think that her baby is probably like passed on or carried on her perversion. And so then her baby's also going to be stuck in the school for her entire life. And that is like too much for London to bear. So she also meets um, Maxine and her younger sister Rose um, and Rose has Down syndrome. So their parents voluntarily committed them to the school. Um, Maxine, her secret is that her parents caught her kissing another girl. Um, so they just got rid of both sisters. And then Alice is a young woman who um, has a club foot. And her brother decided that the shame of it was too much to bear. He couldn't, you know, take care of her. And so all four of these girls are basically committed to this horrible place and they form this really fast, um, like friendship seems like too light of a word. It's like a sisterhood. Mm. Like they really start looking out for each other because this is a really brutal place. Yeah. Not only are the other girls their age, not always, you know, some of them are really just harmless, but some of them are really vicious. But then the older women who also grew up in the school, um, not always the nicest. And then the matrons who run the school are horrific like they treat them so horribly so london you know she's been the most recent arrival and she's like we have got to get out of here like this is not a good place for us and the other three are just kind of like how like where would we even go like (laughs) like you don't understand like there's no place in society for us it wouldn't like send us back here but london hatches a plan and it's a dangerous plan but she is determined to see it through. So this book was really eye-opening in terms of like looking at the disability experience in the 1920s, like all the content warnings for ableism and um, just, you know, the horrific mindsets and opinions that people had at the time for anybody who, you know, had a physical disability or who was even just different in society. Like this was a dumping ground for people who didn't want to have to deal with women who didn't fit the mold. But it was also, you know, really important book to look at, you know, a marginalized experience in the 1920s. I don't think I've ever read a book that, you know, dives into this experience. Um, So this is why that one really stood out in my brain. And it was a really eye-opening book. It was moving. It was kind of heartbreaking at times. But at the same time, it's not completely depressing. So um, definitely go pick this up if you haven't. And J. Albert Mann has also read a lot of really great historical fiction about women and time periods that, like you said, don't normally get a ton of attention. Um, She's written one about the founder of Planned Parenthood, which I think is really awesome. Mm. So um, the Degenerates by J. Albert Mann and her backlist. I highly recommend. Interesting to think about. I don't know why this popped in my head as you were speaking, but how awful people have been to each other throughout history. And like sometimes I'll I'll hear of stories of like, oh, my great great grandfather in the 1920s was a farmer or whatever. I never hear about stories of like, oh, yeah, my great great grandparents in the 1920s um, sent their daughter away to a girl's prison because she was, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm like, Oh, where, where are those people? I never hear about their life stories. It's like, well, and, and I think like, because there was such that horrific stigma of, you know, against disability and just anybody who was different and, I'm blanking on her name, but like, didn't John F. Kennedy have a sister that they 
tried to pretend didn't exist. Like I think, yeah, I want to. I almost want to say her name was Rose, but it could be because you said you said one of the characters' names was Rose. But yes, they had a. I heard they had a, a sister that was like in the attic or something all the time. Rosemary. Her name was yeah, Rosemary. I was about yeah. to say it was Rose. I close. I yeah, close. you were close. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, and we probably only know about her because you know her entire family is super famous, and people would take note if. But how many, you know, women throughout history just disappeared and their families completely stopped talking about them and never mentioned them again. And then younger generations never knew, you know? Yeah. It's really bad. It's terrible. Oof. Oh, oh my God. All right. <laughs> Definitely read that one. I need to read that yeah. one as well. I'm curious too on, on how, um, like how the whole thing was abolished actually, so. Well, and I think that that school was probably not abolished until much later than it ought to have been. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I don't have my physical copy anymore because I think I passed it on to somebody. But the author did have a really great author's note about like the history, so right. could definitely learn a lot more. That sounds good. Good and infuriating. Okay, yeah. so another piece <laughs> of infuriating um, YA historical fiction. I have Angel of Greenwood by Randy Pink. And this is about the Greenwood Massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was known as Black Wall Street. It happened in 1921. And this story follows two 17, well, a 17-year-old and a 16-year-old. 17-year-old name is Isaiah Wilson, and the 16-year-old name is Angel Hill. You may recognize, well... I realized kind of late. I was like, oh, Angel, Angel of Greenwood. I get it. So Isaiah, it's interesting how they juxtapose the two characters. They're both black and they kind of represent in a way two schools of black thought on how the black community fits into America. And so I, by that, I mean, Isaiah, um, he's kind of... Like he gets into trouble and stuff and he has a best friend who is very questionable. And by questionable, I mean like he's basically a bully, but Isaiah has a sensitive side to him. Like he loves to read. He's actually kind of a poet. He walks everywhere with his journal and stuff like that. And when I said that they, the two main characters represent um, two different ideas of, I guess, black philosophy of the time, Isaiah is a follower. He believes in what W.E.B. Du Bois, his, you know, thoughts on black integration or lack thereof, whatever, um, of the time. And which is basically that black people should kind of rise up and take their place in society or whatever. So then that's contrasted. All of Isaiah really is contrasted by Angel Hill. And Angel is a... She is kind of alone. She's quiet. When people do notice her, like her peers, um, her classmates, whatever, Isaiah even, when they notice her, they see her as being this like goody two shoes. She's kind of like a church mouse in a way. Um, Also because she goes to church and she's quiet and she just, you know, is like this quote unquote good girl as it were. And she follows, or she believes in what Booker T. Washington touts, which is that, which is basically like respectability politics, like um, as long as black people remain 
mild-mannered and uh, agreeable and get educations that they'll rise in terms of being respectable to white people and therefore be treated better. La la la. So Angel is very, Angel is, Angel sacrifices herself a lot. Like she um, takes care of her father who is dying. She helps take care of like this baby in the neighborhood and um, her family is really going through it financially. And she just like tries to um, help everyone else, even maybe to her own detriment at times. So as I said, a lot of people don't really notice Angel. But one day I, Isaiah does, partially because they have a teacher who sets them up to distribute books to places that don't get books. So they start to kind of, you know, speak to each other and Isaiah sees her dance and church and he's just like, okay, he starts to see her in this new light. Their lives in Greenwood are pretty, are pretty good, especially for what comes after. What comes after is when the white mob attacks, the racist mob um, storms Greenwood and kills people, destroys homes they destroyed a church. They destroyed um, hospitals so that even people who were injured couldn't um, be treated. And then I think surrounding towns, like the white hospitals, they wouldn't treat them and stuff like that. So the two of them try to like come together to help their town as much as they can. And when something tragic like this happens, even if you say believe in W.B. Du Bois or Booker T. Washington, or whomever, your true, I guess your true self comes out when you're tested like this. So we see their, you know, true personalities or true intentions come out. And they are still figuring out who they are, but this event helps them, helps accelerate that journey, I would say. And I would also say that their relationship is gradual and therefore more realistic. I think it's complex. It's not simple and straightforward. It's not like an insta-love situation, which no shade to insta-love, no problem with that at all. But um, yeah, so this is just, I didn't learn. I felt like my school did a fairly good job of teaching us about like black history and American history, which is American history, obviously. But I never heard about the Tulsa massacre until I was fully grown. So I love that this book exists. Randy Pink did an awesome job with portraying the times. And again, I like how she juxtaposed these two characters. So you're kind of getting different views of black idea and black thought and stuff like that, because I just think it's, it's important to remember like people, you know, people don't always agree. So there are different aspects and different sides to things. So yes, I highly recommend. Um, again, it's one of <laughs> tears of like your book. It's like one of those books that's like, Oh, wow, this is really frustrating. Thank you. <laughs> this, this historical event. I hate it. Thanks. You know, so, but it's really like how you described your first book tears. It's also very well done. So again, that's angel of Greenwood by Randy pink. Yeah. You know, those, those hard hitting ones where you're like, Ugh, I don't, I don't like thinking that this is real, but yeah. it's real and it's important that we know about it. So. Yeah. And Randy Pink has also written a great book set in the early 1960s, right before 
Roe v. Wade was passed. Oh, yes. Yeah, so definitely check out her backlist as well. I think that's Girls Like Us? Yes, I believe so. All right, my next pick um, is more of like a general sort of recommendation of an author's backlist. It's um, If you've not read anything by June Her, I Mm. highly recommend it. Um, what I love about Junar is that she has written these fantastic historical um, mysteries, and they are set all in Korea. And they are awesome because I know nothing about historical Korea. Um, I read Pachinko, which is a fantastic adult novel by Min Jin Lee. But other than that, like I've never read anything that's set in historical Korea. So this is just amazing. Um, her first book is The Silence of Bones, which is about a young woman who is an indentured servant to the police force in the capital city. Um, so basically, during this time period, um, men are strictly forbidden from touching women, especially of like the noble class. So this young woman, she is an indentured servant. She assists with any murders or mysteries where women are involved because she has to be the one that, you know, will inspect or the body or, huh. um, yeah, like touch basically anything that would require you to come in contact with women. Like she's kind of like the go between. They can't even touch dead women? No, they can't even touch them if they're dead. Wow. So, yeah, there's this murder of a noble woman, and it has a lot of political implications, and she gets sort of sucked into it. But then as she is looking and helping with this murder, she's forming her own suspicions, and she also has her own sort of shadowy past. And when it starts to become clear that this murder might have a connection to her own past um she gets in deeper so really excellent it's set in the year 1800 and i you know have done a lot of research about like europe in the early 1800s and i've written mystery books set in the early 1800s and what i did not realize what i was really impressed with is you know in in this time period um forensic technology and science was far more advanced in Korea than it was in England at the time. So that was really just cool to read about and to read about like not only the culture and the history, but like also, you know, how did society go about solving crime back then mm-hmm. in a completely different part of the world that I'd ever read about. Um, another really great book that she has written is The Forest of Stolen Girls. Mm, so good. Yeah, which is set a little bit earlier. It's set in um, 1426. And it's about um, a young woman named Huani who she and her little sister um, got lost in the woods one day. They were out and about and then they got lost. And so, you know, to everybody else, they disappeared. And she sort of blocks out what happens to her and her sister. But all she knows is like when her memories kind of kick in, they, um, they were kind of found unconscious near the body of a dead woman who had been murdered. And so years later, she now knows that like in this forest, multiple girls have gone missing and they happen to stumble upon one of the missing murdered girls. Um, So now in present day, her, I mean, not present day, present day, but like 
her present day in 1426, um, her father goes missing and she goes back to the forest to figure out what happened to her and what has happened to her father. Um, so that was another really interesting mystery. Um, and I just really enjoy that these books, like I said, dive into a world that I know very little about, but I know having read like the author's notes and having followed her on social media, she does a lot of really great research to bring this time period to life, which I think is awesome. So she's also written um, The Red Palace, which I have not read yet. I have a copy of and I just have been meaning to. And then she has a new book coming out, I think, either later this year or early next year called a crane among wolves. So she, yeah, she's really great because she just has these really fascinating premises and really interesting time periods. So if you have not read June her, I highly recommend picking up any of these books. Awesome. Ah, just the perfect. I, well, you know, I love a good mystery and yeah, I, I don't know any other, I don't personally know any other, books set in historical Korea, especially YA books. So I love that. Before I get into my next one, we're going to hear very quickly from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Scribner. Weird Black Girls by Elwyn Cotman is a collection of seven stories in which characters pursue their obsessions on paths to glory and destruction, while all around them their worlds twist and warp, oscillating between reality and impossibility. On display throughout is Cotman's ability to reveal truths about the human experience, about things like friendship, love, betrayal, bitterness, all through whimsy, horror, and fantasy. Elegiac in tone, imaginative, and humorous in their execution, the character-driven stories in Weird Black Girls challenge, incite, and entertain. The author's last book was named one of NPR's Best Books of the Year and was a finalist for the Philip K. Dick Award, with reviews appearing in the New York Times, Wired, BuzzFeed, and Locus, among other publications. Definitely make sure to check out Weird Black Girls by Elwyn Cotman. And thanks again to Scribner for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so next one I have is The Downstairs Girl by Stacey Lee. And this this is kind of another thing where I'm like, I don't hear much about this, especially for a certain demographic. And this follows an Asian girl living in 1890 Atlanta, Georgia. 
So I like that combination because I'm like, oh, I never like 1890 is very specific. First of all, I don't, I haven't read much about 1890 Atlanta, anything, much less um, an Asian girl living there. So I'm like, you know, what's that dynamic like? So story follows 17 year old Joe Kwan, who works as a lady's maid for the daughter of a really rich guy in Atlanta. And the girl is terrible. So Joe is not feeling this job. She's awful. And, um, but she kind of gets this respite because she moonlights as an author of a, a newspaper advice column. It's called Dear Miss Sweetie. And it's like geared towards the like the, you know, the genteel Southern lady, you know, iced tea and fans and all that. And her column becomes super popular. So she starts to talk about things that she thinks should be fixed in society, like, oh, racism and sexism and stuff. And then shocker people feel some type of way about it. Mm-hmm. They're like, <laughs> which is just 1890 Atlanta. What? Honestly, like 2023 Atlanta, if we're going to be real. Well, Atlanta's a little more advanced. You know what I'm saying? Georgia. All right. So people are trying to figure out who this person is. Like, who is Miss Sweetie? Like, who is she for real? Because she is ruffling feathers. She's upsetting people's home girls and all that. And so... She, meanwhile, is, it's interesting because another, another interesting comparison, juxtaposition, whatever. As a Chinese American in the American South, she is kind of like invisible, except when people want to be nasty to her and be racist. So it's like, but with her column, she's well known and respected until, you know, she says the stuff about race and gender, then they're like trying to, you know, expose her. Um, and she lives with, another uh, Chinese immigrant, or rather I shouldn't say another, um, she's American, but he is from China. His name is Old Gin, and he adopted her basically. She doesn't know what happened to her parents. And so they kind of live in this, in this abandoned print shop. And it was like an abolitionist hideaway, which was an interesting detail. So Basically, her whole writing as Miss Sweetie and the backlash it gets and people trying to figure out her real identity, eventually, her writings, I guess, make her wind up kind of getting the attention of a criminal in Atlanta. And she has to basically figure out if she wants to, how she wants to handle being in the spotlight, like coming into the spotlight because it's dangerous, because people are not, like I said, they're not feeling her writing. Um, then there's this criminal. And so she has to figure out what she is going to do with her voice, with herself. And I like that, again, it shows a time in history for a group of people that is Asian Americans, specifically Asian girls in Atlanta, Georgia, um, in 1890. And I, I haven't read about that in any other books. So I thought that was really an interesting um, aspect of this. So again, this is The Downstairs Girl by Stacey Lee. Yes, that book was so good. And I also really loved um, Outrun the Moon and um, Under a Painted Sky by her. Nice. Yeah, so, so awesome. 
And also I read that book and I did not know that during this time period, it was just like illegal for um, Chinese Americans to own land, rent any, you know, rooms or houses or anything. So it's like, where, where were they supposed to live? Where are they supposed to sleep? Like, that's the issue. Like, they made laws so that it was almost impossible for them to live with dignity. That made me so angry because I never learned that like growing up or in school or anything. So neither did I. Yeah. So many things we didn't learn. So many things. It's like it never, it's like when you read it in a book, it's like, Oh, is this fiction? Is this an added? No, it's not ridiculous. Yeah. And I mean, and that's, I'm just gonna take a moment to say, this is what I love about historical fiction, Mm. especially historical fiction that is about women, that is about marginalized people, because, uh, you know, we, I feel like so much of my um, history was, you know, very whitewashed in Mm. school, like, and then when it was like, let's learn about slavery, let's learn about the civil rights movement. And it got very distilled into, you know, bite sized sort of talking points or, you know, information that as you get older, and you read more, you're like, oh, it's not quite as black and white or as straightforward as, you know, as it was presented to you. And historical fiction allows you to see history through the point of view and through the eyes of the marginalized and you learn so many things that you just you know wouldn't get in a history book unless it was like a footnote so i really do appreciate that about historical fiction it's one of the reasons why i like reading historical fiction especially historical fiction starring ladies that's such a good point yeah i've learned a lot through historical fiction honestly it also helps just make history more interesting because let's be honest, like sometimes, many times, I'll say sometimes, I'll say sometimes, I'll keep it cute. Sometimes how it's taught, how it's presented to us in school is like, it does it, it does history a disservice, I feel. And reading historical fiction, it's like you're immersed into these characters' lives, you care about what happens, you're immersed in the time period and it it makes you feel like you are kind of like I said immersed so you're kind of living it so it, it makes you learn that history even more but yeah I also love historical fiction yeah and I think this is a really interesting segue too into I think my question that I want to po- pose to you mm. um, which is do you think historical fiction has to be historically accurate oh that's a good question. I feel like, no, it doesn't have to be because um, as long as it's known that it's not, as long as there's like somewhere in the in the uh, book blurb or something, it's like an alternate history of whatever, whatever. And I think I have a book that is like that, actually. Yeah. I was I was going to even say, like, I don't even necessarily think it has to be billed as, like, alternate history, per se, right, but, right. like, maybe just kind of, like, a twist on history. Or, yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Because I feel like writers should be able to write about anything, you know? Like, I like there's so many great stories that could come from reimagining history. And I've read some, like, um, this is in YA, but P. Jelly Clark's like steampunky books that are set yeah. in Egypt. Those are so fun. Well, those, I say those. It's like one book and a couple novellas. They're all fun. It's such a fun story. I love it. Um, Master of Jin, I think it's called. Again, not YA, but very fun. And it's understood that it's like, you know, it's not, it's a twist on history, as you said. So I feel like they don't have to be, but I really, 
But all the other aspects, say, I'm going to use that book for an example to continue the example. Mm-hmm. A lot of the other aspects in that book are true to history, like the cultural aspects, like the clothing, the food, the language, um, stuff like that. And uh, no, I, I would say they don't have to be, but I, I really respect when they are because then I feel like I'm learning something. But um, and I, you know, I respect the research that goes into them, but I would say they don't have to be. But I would like to know if they are not so that I'm, I'm not like, oh, yeah, you know, that um, in 1920 Egypt, da, 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 da. Yeah. But what, how, do you, how do you feel about that? I definitely don't think historical fiction needs to be historically accurate in mm-hmm. order to be like, considered good historical fiction or even just like, you know, fun historical fiction that you want to read. And I say this as like somebody with skin in the game because right. I've written a, like, I like to call them a historical because they, in my mind, they're not alternate history because there's not like some big departure or, right. you know, instead of this happened, this happened in history, mm-hmm. you know? And then in my mind, that's more like alternate history is like, there is some sort of big departure from what actually happened in history. Right. If something is ahistorical, it means that like you've kind of got like modern or anachronistic elements in it, right. but it's still trying to stay true to like the spirit of the time period. Um, and I think like, like you said, like it's, I think about the Bridgerton effect where mm. like, we all know that that is not perfectly historically accurate. But yeah, it's trying real hard to fit into the time period. And it's kind of bringing like all the trappings of the time period to that show while also being more inclusive and um, a little bit more feminist and um, more progressive. And I like that because I think it does open people's minds up to like what the reality of history was versus our idea of what history was. Um, Because I think you know, the dominant narrative would tell you that everybody in history was like white and, you know, genteel and everybody tried their best and there were no gay people and, you know, people who were not, you know, who were marginalized didn't always have happy endings. And like, we know that that's false. Like we just know it because of historical record, but you know, that's when the dominating voices in historical fiction tell one story like that's kind of like what our modern conception of history becomes and i want to add to that too that well as you were saying like there are always queer people there are always people of color throughout history in certain places not always everywhere but in certain places like england and speaking of bridgerton and just like some of the record keepers of the time well i wouldn't say record keepers of the time some how some people portray that era now, like our, our contemporaries. Um, sometimes they leave out the people of color and the queer people and stuff like that, but they were there. Um, I would say though, <laughs> I wonder if like, say in the case of Bridgerton, to use that as an example, if it were like super historically accurate, would people even want to watch it? You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. would people of our time, would we even want to watch it if it didn't have the more, you know, feminist, things added the more you know more inclusivity would people actually want to watch it like if it was truly accurate to the time you know what I mean yeah exactly (laughs) and like you know it's it's a fine line to balance but I think like you are trying to entertain a modern audience who has modern expectations and like modern desires Mm -hmm. but like also likes that historical like I, I hesitate to use the word set dressing because when I write historical fiction I never want like 
the historical time period to become set dressing. Mm-hmm. I want it to be important. But like, yeah, you're totally right. Like if I were to write a historically accurate, you know, version of like my pride and premeditation, which is about a it's a retelling of Pride and Prejudice in which Lizzie Bennett is an aspiring barrister and um, sets out to solve a crime in order to prove herself. Like, there's no way any of that would happen. And there are many points where it's like, I have to make like these changes to like what would have been been deemed acceptable because Mm -hmm. like there's no way that she would have had enough agency to solve a crime, you know, if she... Because, like, basically she would be kept home all the time oh and under God. careful eye. Like, for from, like, a story standpoint, like, storytelling standpoint, that's not going to, like, get the mystery solved. That's not going to be an entertaining yeah. mystery. So yeah. you make these departures while also kind of trying to acknowledge the time period and stay true to it. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it can be, a, like, it can be a delicate balance. And I yeah. think some or maybe more successful than others. And I think there are definitely some readers who like do not like that. Um, I've had a lot of interesting feedback about my stuff. I've had readers absolutely hate it because it wasn't historically accurate. I've had readers try to like be very confused about what the time period was. They're like, I really liked it, but was it supposed to be set in like present day? And it's like, no, it's really not. How'd you read it if you didn't? How'd you know? You <laughs> right. So like, and you know, whatever, however yeah. people come to it, I don't really care if they enjoy it. I'm happy. But like, it can be confusing, I think, to some people because they have certain expectations about what historical fiction is. And so I like the idea of thinking about historical fiction as kind of a way like it's, it's like a genre that you can play in and you can you know, do creative things in, but you don't have to always follow the strict rules of historical accuracy. Um, I think you do need to follow some rules of historical accuracy because if you have a book set in 1920 and somebody comes up and is like, oh, what's up, dude? Like, nobody's going to be like, (laughs) like, people are going to be annoyed by that. Like, that's not realistic. Oh, that's the shtick and you're like really going to lean into it. That's funny. Um, So yeah, anywho, I could go on forever, but um, maybe instead I will... Tell, tell you about the book that kind of inspired <laughs> slash sparked this question. Yes. Which is A Spy in the House by Y.S. Lee. And it is the first in the agency series. There are four books in the series. I highly recommend all of them. But this is the first one. And it is about a young woman named Mary. She is growing up, I believe it's 1850s England. So Victorian, early Victorian period. Ooh, I love it. Yeah. And she is an orphan. And which, as a child, the, the book starts, this is all in the prologue, so this is not a spoiler. Uh, in the prologue, she is a child, and she is orphaned, and she has no nothing and no one, and she is caught stealing. And she's basically stealing food because she's starving. And the punishment in 1850s London, if you're caught stealing, like, it's the noose for you. It doesn't matter if you're a child. It doesn't matter if you're orphaned. It doesn't matter if you're starving. Like, you're done. And so she is waiting to basically hang and she is, you know, a bit, more than a bit scared by this. But at the last minute, um, this woman who um, appears to be a warden in the, like a woman warden in the prison saves her. And then she learns that this woman is actually just pretending to be a warden. She actually has this finishing school for girls and she has saved um, Mary because she sees something in her, some potential. And so she whisks her away and gives her a place at this finishing school. Fast forward to the first chapter. Mary has grown up. Mary has graduated from finishing school. She's become a teacher at the school. 
she loves the school because they they've given her her life and they've given her calling purpose skills everything she needs and then she finds out the true purpose for this finishing school it's a cover for an all-female super secret agency of spies and she is being recruited to be one of the spies now that she is old enough to make this decision so she agrees to go undercover as a lady's companion in this very fancy like middle-class merchant's household um, to uncover some secrets. And this is the beginning of just like a very, really delightful spy mystery series. And everything feels very like grounded in the time period, but like the most fantastic, you know, thing about this book is that like, there's this super secret female agency that is operating throughout London and it only has female spies and they are placed in the most improbable places. So it's not really alternate history because everything kind of really holds pretty true to like history as we know it, but it is a historical. What is really fun about this is Mary herself has a secret, a secret that not even the agency knows. Mm -hmm. And that is she has been passing as white her entire life. Oh, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, she's biracial. (laughs) Oh, you got me. Yeah. (laughs) That was a twist. (laughs) She, yeah. And that's kind of, I mean, it's kind of like a surprise in the book. Like it's kind of kept a secret for the first part of the book, but I, I don't really like it when like pieces of identity are used as like a twist. So that's mm. why I'm kind of revealing it. But her father was Chinese and her mother was Irish. Okay. And so in this time period, her, you know, darker coloring and her, um, even like the shape of her eyes, they, people just passed her off as um, dark Irish is what they call it in the time oh. period. But as she's going about her, her spy missions, she's also trying to uncover like, you know, what happened in her past mm. and also trying to hide who she is because she knows and she fears that even if the women who saved her and gave her this chance, if they were to know that they would cast her out because that's how strong racism is in 1850s England. <sighs> yeah. But it's an excellent series. It's got a really, really great romance that plays out over all four books. And I love it so, so much. So four books, Start with a Spy in the House by Y.S. Lee. And four more books to my TBR tears. <laughs> no, I like spies in Victorian England. My weakness. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> oh my God. Awesome. All right. That sounds, that sounds awesome. Okay, so next one I have is So Many Beginnings, A Little Women Remix by Bethany C. Morrow. And I guess this like kind of tells you what the book is about in the, in the subtitle. It's a retelling of Little Women, except this time it's about four Black sisters coming of age during the Civil War in America. And it takes place in North Carolina in 1863. So um, slavery has not fully been abolished yet. Like the Civil War, like I said, it's still going on. I think in 1863, it's like the um, enslaved people in the Southern states were freed, Emancipation Proclamation or whatever. So this, these girls live with their parents on a colony of in Roanoke Island that is for freed people so basically the people have been freed and they are building starting to build a community for themselves and for their kids and for the future and stuff like that 
But with that said, a lot of them, if not all of them, still have the shadow of slavery kind of like hanging over their heads. But they still push forward in you know, like positive ways, positive as in like hopeful ways is what I mean by that. And so the March family has the four daughters and they are all these, dis- they're all distinctly themselves. Like you have Meg, Joe, Beth, Amy, and Joe is a writer. Beth is a seamstress. Amy, a dancer. Meg is a teacher. Um, or they, they're all wanting to be these things at the very least. And so they set out to become these things, to become themselves, who they are. And they're all kind of like independent. They are seeking out love. Some of them have health struggles. There's heartbreak. There are new things to discover. It's very similar to Little Women, as far as I have heard. I'm pr- <laughs> I have a confession. It might make you gasp. <laughs> I'm already gasping. <laughs> I feel like I feel like I feel like you can sense it coming now. I don't think I have, and I say that because there are some books, admittedly, that I was I read in school that I forgot that I read mm-hmm. because it was just a while ago. But Fair. have you seen either movie? I have not. But I know that. <laughs> oh, okay, 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 Erica. <laughs> I'm sorry Tears to make you laugh so, so hard you're coughing. Oh my god, now there's cat hair in my eye. No. I shook up the cat hair. Oh my god. Alright, I Amazing. love, love, love the White Nona Rider version because it's the version that I grew up with. Okay. And it's so marvelous. But the Greta Gerwig one, the new one with Saoirse Ronan as Joe, it is so good. That's how you say her name? I always forget how yes. to say that girl's name. I'll be like, wait, <laughs> Oh yeah, it is, it's 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 Sersha. Yes, Sersha. You gotta practice that. That's cool. I know. I heard that was really good though. And Florence Pugh as Amy. Um, I always hated Amy. Always mm. I cannot stand the girl. She's a spoiled brat who gets everything she wants. Why should I like her? Why? Florence Pugh made me actually like Amy in that movie. So I heard it was really good. It's so good. Like I, I need to watch it again now that we're talking about it because I loved it so so much. The new, the new one you're speaking. The new about. one, yeah. They're both great, but the new one is really good. It's really good. Like I was prepared not to like it because I was like, how can you replace the Winona Ryder version? And then I ended up really liking it. So um, I like them both. Yeah, it has all the the a lot of the new young actors in it, like Timothy Chalamet. Yes. And Pew and um, Sersha, I think. Ronan and Saoirse. Emma Watson as Meg. So, yeah. Emma Watson is in that? Yeah, Emma Watson is in it. Yeah. I barely see her in things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> These days. All right, Emma. Well, I'm glad you like so many beginnings because it has been on my list for a while. And I do love Little Women. And I've been wanting to read this one because I want to brilliant idea for a remix this fits so well i feel like well as (laughs) someone who hasn't read the original i feel like i know it i feel like the original has been on my tbr forever so i know what it's about like you know the summary or whatever but this this is such an interesting take on it and again well like a few of these books the books i've already mentioned 
It talks about a time in history, about a demographic in history that I don't hear much about. Like I hear about enslaved black people in black in America during this time, but I don't read much about um, freed people. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's cool to see like what they do, what they get into. And, you know, reading about this family, these girls who are all very different and have different views and goals and everything like that. Maybe, we, maybe that'll, maybe that could be an episode like us watching, yeah. you rewatching, me watching for the first time and then comparing to. It'll just be like an hour of me reacting to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. A few gasps here and there, or maybe you've already gasped. I like how you had the preemptive gasp, like you felt it. Coming. I know, I was there. I was like, <laughs> she gonna, she gonna admit? Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> All right, so, so yeah, yeah. This is a we have whole episodes just on what I haven't seen or read, and you like gasping. You know, it's so many, so many little women feelings that got packed in there at the end. I'm, I was not expecting that. <laughs> Oh, in the new movie? No, no, just in this episode. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, yes, we have to we're running out of time. We have to go on. We so are. yes, so many beginnings, Little Woman remix by Bethany Seymour. Pick it up. Oh, so good. So good. Yeah, we actually had more books to cover, but we are seriously running out of, yeah, time. We're out of time. So we'll put those in the show notes. Um I was going to mention A Million to One by Adita Jagadier. And you were going to mention All That Glitters by Yida Trelis. Yep. So definitely check those out as well. Um, but thank you so much for tuning in this week and hearing us react to each other's, um, <laughs> you know, gaps in cultural <laughs> the knowledge, I guess. The shame <laughs> of it all. There's no shame. Me. There's no shame. I just have reactions. I'm sorry. I can't hide That's my face okay. or my gasps. <laughs> but, um, please feel free to leave us feedback about the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify because it lets us know how we're doing it and it helps others to find us. You can always email us at heyya@bookriot.com with um, requests, feedback, and more. And don't forget to visit bookriot.com for newsletters, more podcasts, and all things bookish. Thank you to today's sponsors for making this show possible. And thanks to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. You can follow me on Instagram. I hang out at, at Tears of Price and Erica. I'm on Twitter at Erica underscore easy E underscore. Awesome. Well, we will talk to you again in two weeks. Um, We do want to give you a little bit of a heads up, though, that at the end of March, we will be doing another book club discussion. And this time we're going to be talking about All My Rage by Sabata here. Yeah, because it is the Prince and National Book Award winner and i have not read it yet so i'm really excited to read it and chat about it with you Mm -hmm. same i haven't read it either i'm excited awesome so you can read it with us and or if you've already read it make sure to tune in and we'll have all of our discussions and reactions and guests for um, (laughs) not the next not the next episode but the next episode after that but just giving you a heads up in case you wanted to read along with us well until then happy reading happy reading happy reading